Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll begin this morning by reading from Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Father God, we come before you this morning. We are grateful for your new covenant of grace. We're grateful, Lord God, that because of the, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we know that the words of these great and precious promises have been fulfilled. Allow us to look at the book of Ephesians this morning through this lens, Lord God, that we would understand that you have been faithful, that you will be faithful, and that we have been forgiven through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Give us your Holy Spirit this morning to help us understand to be examined by and convicted by scripture. And if it be your will, that some would be drawn to a saving understanding of who you are. We ask these things confidently in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We'll skip forward a few uh, books from there and find ourselves again in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. To rewind a bit, we know that the, the first three chapters of Ephesians have taken us through and properly aligned our hearts to see the immeasurable, lavish grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Paul has time and time again showed us that all that we would understand from this book is theology that leads to doxology, that would lead to the praising of God. We then know that we transitioned in the fourth chapter to a new focus where Paul is going to take us based on those rich, deep truths of what Christ has done to tell us now how we ought to live that out. He's going to give us practical guidelines to help us live out our faith in Jesus Christ. We saw last week that without Christ, left to ourselves, our hearts would be hardened, our eyes would be darkened, our spirit would be deadened and we would be estranged and separated from Christ. But God, through Christ, has given us new life. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we've been given a new heart. We've been given a new self. And now as we move into this bottom portion of chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us that there's new ways that we now need to dress ourselves. We need to put off the old way of conduct and put on a new way of conduct. 
We need to stop walking like we used to walk before we knew Christ and walk in a different way. So today we'll be looking at verses 25 through verses 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul's going to help us understand that we now need to put on a new way of conduct. The title of this message is 13 Imperatives for Spirit-Filled Saints. 13 is a lot, so we're not going to do 13 points this morning. We'll kind of boil it down to five. And I want to make sure that we understand as we move into this, that Paul, while being authoritative and being straightforward with what he wants us to do in terms of our conduct, that's not the focus of what he's telling us. What he's going to tell us about and he's going to show us is that as we have been given a calling that we're not worthy of, he's going to show us grace gifts that help us live a worthy calling. We're not on our own to check the boxes and follow these rules. Paul sees all of this through the lens of the new covenant. For the sake of recapping, I'm going to back up to verse 17 and read this for us from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me if you would. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, in Christ, forgave you. For those of you who are note-takers, I'm going to give you sort of the five things so we don't get lost in all that Paul has to tell us this morning about these imperatives. They can kind of be grouped together. One of the remarkable things that Paul does for us here is he's not only telling us don't do this or put this off, but he's also going to tell us what we're supposed to put on. The first thing is that we're to put off lying and speak truthfully. So that's number one. The second thing is we're supposed to put off anger supposed to leave that behind. The third thing is we're supposed to put off stealing and work for a living instead. Fourthly, we're supposed to put off unwholesome talk and instead speak grace to one another. 
And fifth and finally, we're supposed to put off bitterness along with a collection of other unpleasant things and instead show mercy and kindness to one another. So we got that? Five things. Now we're going to move through these. And as we go through, I'm not just hoping that the Holy Spirit will show us areas in our life where we might need to be convicted and strengthened in these areas of how our conduct looks, but also that we would marvel at God's gifts of grace to help us live this out. We talked about the spiritual gifts, right? We saw those five different giftings of the the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the shepherds, but now we're going to get gifts that are given to all new covenant believers to live worthy of the calling. Ready to get started? The first thing, putting off lying and speaking truthfully. We'll look at verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I mentioned to you over the last couple of weeks that we're going to have a weekly dose of the book of Zechariah. And this is our first opportunity to do that. We're going to look at Zechariah verses 8, sorry, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And Paul is actually calling this verse into view. Some of you who have study Bibles might notice that there's a cross-reference back to the book of Zechariah. God used the prophet Zechariah to tell his covenant people as they're being brought out of captivity and brought back into Jerusalem like settlers, former captives, that their conduct is deplorable to the Lord. They're lying to one another, they're stealing from one another, and they have an altogether dishonest code of conduct. Verses 16 and 17 of Zechariah 8 say, these are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath. For these things I hate, declares the Lord. In Paul's day, the Ephesian city was a city full of commerce. It's full of commerce, but it's also full of people who, like in Zechariah's day, were displaced members of a covenant community. If we think of some specific people that we've learned about, we know that Paul meets this lovely couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They were Jews that had to leave Rome because they were persecuted. Paul meets up with them, and then he invites them to come with him to Ephesus. So they've been transplanted now at least a couple times that Scripture tells us, and they have this trade of making tents. Because of the the treatment towards Christianity, we have the the riot and the Ephesians... um, upset with the way that Christ followers are disrupting their trade, it's very likely that the believers would have had to sort of band together and do business with one another, the remnant people. It's for this reason that Paul uses words from the prophet Zechariah to say, hey, let each of you speak truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 9, we're going to glance at this text a couple of times this week. Colossians chapter 3, much like Romans 12, bears much in common with Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says to the church at Colossae, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. 
as we understand verse 25, we might easily think that this is about lies amongst one another, telling white lies or things that we might excuse, but it actually has a very specific connotation about how Christians would do business with one another. The town I grew up in, back in Illinois, they had a, a guide called the Shepherd's Guide. I'm not sure if we ever had one of these in San Diego, but it's like a Christian yellow pages. Christian business owners could advertise to one another, and the idea was that you kind of keep the business in the family. And I can remember growing up, my parents used this shepherd's guide on more than a couple of occasions, and sadly, as they moved through it, they realized that the quality of work, how far the dollar would go, and the integrity of some of the people that they looked up in this business didn't match up with that of the world. What an indicting statement. For those in our body of believers that might be business owners or would be business owners, the integrity with which we do business reflects the truth of Jesus Christ. The verse goes on to say, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Now, this is an important statement. As we go through, we're seeing these gifts of grace. One of the gifts of grace is that we've now been given a new covenant community. The word neighbor is not used here by happenstance. We read it in Jeremiah 31 in the new covenant, right? Each one will know that his neighbor also knows the Lord. Where else can we be in a community where our neighbors know the Lord but the church? Jesus also uses the word neighbor as he spells out the, par the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he asks at the end, hey, which one of these three guys was the neighbor? Scratched their head and said, well, the one that showed mercy, the Samaritan, he's the neighbor. Only in the community of new covenant grace, do we find this concept of neighbor? And Paul goes on to use a terminology that we, we will all know and love by the time we get to the end of this precious book. It says, we are all members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 explains that the body of Christ works in an anatomical fashion. We're all knit together with Christ as our head. Ephesians 4, 16 says, 15 and 16 rather, it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this covenant community with neighbors and with members ought to deal with one another in a business sense, in a speech sense that is true that is upright, and that shows honor. Finally, before we move on to the, the second thing, I, I will also want to point out that it says, therefore, having put away falsehood. This points back to the law, to the third commandment. Anybody know what the third commandment is? Don't use the Lord's name in vain. And we hear that, and we think, oh, well, it means not to, not to swear or to flippantly say God's name. But moreover, it has to do with making an oath. Under the old covenant, people would swear by heaven or swear by the name of God that they would, in fact, do what they were going to do. God makes it clear, don't do that. James reiterates that in the words of Christ, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's how our, our speech should be with one another in the body of Christ. So that Christ would be honored 
and the body would be built up. So that's the first thing, our conduct. We're going to put off lying, and we're going to speak truthfully with one another. Ready for the next one? The next one is put off anger. And curiously enough, this one, the counterpart is so obvious that Paul doesn't tell us, right? We have put off lying and speak truthfully. The put off anger stands by itself because it's pretty self-explanatory. Ephesians 4, 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. With regards to anger, Christ follower, don't be quick to become angry. Keep it righteous. James 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become anger, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See that with clarity? Slow down the angry response in order that our lives would reflect the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. It's unbecoming for a Christian to fly off the handle and to become angry. It's important for us to understand, too, that the anger isn't just an emotional response. It's also a moral judgment. It is an evaluation of something that causes a response. If you recall, the uh, word we went through a few weeks back was forbearance. That of forgiving something that we think and claim as as our right. My rights were violated, therefore I am angry. But if we properly apply forbearance, we can slow our response down. Now Paul does something again in this verse that he artfully does throughout the book of Ephesians, and that is he nods back to the Old Testament. He points us back to his own wealth of scriptural knowledge, the Word of God, inspired, infallible, and unchanging. And he's pointing in this text to Psalm Chapter 4, verse 4. It says very clearly, Be angry and do not sin. Paul didn't even have to paraphrase it, right? Let's just use that one again. Be angry and do not sin. But then the psalmist says something very interesting. He says, Ponder in your own hearts on your bed. There's so much in this text. First of all, this is one that is often used for married couples. Don't let the sun Go down on your anger. Don't go to bed angry. Fix it before you put your head on the pillow. Now, this is good advice for married couples, but it's also good advice for the body at large. If there is something that has caused you to respond with anger, fix it before the day ends. Reach out to the person with whom you need restoration. Cry out to the Lord that he would examine your own heart. And in fact, that's what the psalmist says. He says, ponder in your own hearts on your bed. In other words, redirect that focus of moral indignation from the person that you think has wronged you and look at your own heart. A good way to paraphrase that is check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Look internally. That's what's being said here. Examine your anger. Now, with regards to God's gifts of grace 
in helping us live this out. Not only did God give us this instruction, both in the book of Psalms and throughout scripture, but he came himself in the form of the God-man and showed us what righteous anger looks like. He gave us an example of what it looks like to be angry, but without sin. If you would, in the Gospels, Mark chapter 3, you can turn there. Verses 1 through 6. The lawgiver becomes angered by those would-be law keepers because they're keeping the law for the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. Look what happens in this account. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. He was lame. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. You see that? Christ is filled with indignation because they're concerned with the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And his response, rather than, than harshly lambasting them, rather than cursing them, was simply to heal the man. To show through gentleness, through kindness, and love what the law rightfully requires. He did that without sin. The final point I want to make with regards to anger is a difficult one. And that is because anger is a moral judgment, the anger that a follower of Christ have, has must never be directed at God. Jerry Bridges, from a book I know and love, I don't love it, actually, every time I touch it, it's hard to handle, called Respectable Sins. Jerry Bridges lays out this statement about anger with God. He says this, let me make a statement loud and clear. It is never okay to be angry at God. Anger is a moral judgment, and in the case of God, it accuses him of wrongdoing. It accuses God of sinning against us by neglecting us in some way, or in some way treating us unfairly. It is often a response to our thinking that God owes us a better deal in life than we are getting. As a result, we put God in the docket of our own courtroom. Bridges goes on to say, I think of a man who has his mother lie dying of cancer, said, after all she's done for God, this is the thanks she gets. Never mind that Jesus suffered untold agony to pay for her sins so that she would not spend eternity in hell. This man thought that God owed her a better life on this earth. Be angry, but do not sin. Verse 27 of Ephesians 4, Paul goes on and he makes a statement here to bring our spiritual adversary into view. Reading 26 and 27 together helps us. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
You see, we have an adversary that wants to accuse us, that wants to tempt us, to wants us to be drawn into holding on to our anger in such a way that it creates disunity in the body of Christ. But as we move through Ephesians, we've understood that we have victory over the spiritual adversary. We give him no opportunity because the victory has been won by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.2 says, describing our old nature, it says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, that, that prince of the air has been defeated by the king of kings. He no longer has dominion over us. In Colossians 3, we're told that we have been given an inheritance with the saints and taken out of the domain of darkness. Therefore, the devil has no claim on us. So do not let him have a foothold. James says in another words, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a promise. That's a promise. If we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, he has overcome our spiritual enemy, our adversary, our accuser. We give him no foothold. So the application for that particular point is that God has given us victory over our spiritual adversary. So when we're trying to live out a worthy calling and we're in spiritual combat with our enemy, victory is ours through Christ. Again, the armor is coming. I can't wait to get to chapter six. The armor is coming. This enemy that we stave off because of what Christ has done and how he's equipped us, that's our victory, church. As we move uh, through chapter four, we move to our next point here. So, so far, just to recap for the note takers, we've got we put off lying and speak truthfully to one another. We've got put off anger, and now we've got put off stealing and work for a living instead. Now, this is an interesting one for us to apply. Let's look at verse 27 together. 27, 28. And give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When it comes to the context of the church of Ephesus... Yes, it was a commercial center. Yes, there was great wealth. But these people that are a part of the body of Christ were displaced. They were refugees. They were the remnant. They suffered hard times. Some of them may not have known where their next meal was coming from. It's for this reason that Psalm Proverbs 30 came to mind for me. Proverbs 30 verses 7 through 9 says this. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I fall and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Having spent time in, in Honduras, I've seen people with such hunger that stealing seems to be their only option. How else do we put food on the table. 
For us here, that could be a little bit tough to put into context, right? We've not experienced that level of need. Does that mean that our sinful hearts don't still thieve? Anybody skipped over a box on their taxes before? White-collar crime, right? The church is full of sinners saved by grace that need to put off the old self. Proverbs 20, verse 23 says, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. Just a little bit of fudging here and there in how we do business, is that any less stealing than taking from someone violently? No. It's a grievance to the name of Christ, who is our Savior. It's an offense to the brothers and sisters that we have in the faith. Furthermore, as we, as we look at this text, there's something really important to point out here because Paul is not only laying out what we shouldn't do, he's laying out what we should do. And look what he says. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. If you would, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We see a little bit of our brother Paul's work ethos. He's going to tell us a little bit about how a Christian is supposed to live and supposed to conduct himself so that the name of Christ might be exalted through their behavior. We'll begin at verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here's what Paul says. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their living. What a clear instruction for, for how a follower of Jesus Christ should live. Not dependent on others, but working. Moreover, moreover, back in Ephesians, we're told why we should work. We should not be idle because it points to Christ. It makes us not dependent on others. But check this out. In verse 28, it says, Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You've heard the expression, working for a living? A gospel application here is working for a giving. My family and I know this wonderful family from back in Illinois. They live on the Wisconsin-Illinois state line. And um, a number of years ago, they started a Christmas tree farm. 
And Christmas tree farming is a very difficult thing to do. It takes seven to nine years to get a Christmas tree that is the appropriate size to bring you in any money. Also, you may know that the only time of year people buy Christmas trees is at Christmas. Okay, so you're going to work for 10 to 11 months out of the year with no income so that you can sell Christmas trees. But the truly remarkable thing about this particular family is that before the Christmas tree season would even get underway, they had planned on how they were going to give from their earnings to ministry. They planned in advance. They were going to take their employees, some of whom were not followers of Christ, on a mission trip. They were going to share from what they, they earned to do God's work. They literally planned out their entire year of back-breaking work, months with no income, so that they could give it away. That's what the body of Christ is, is called to do, working not just for a living, but working for a giving. Finally, before we move on to this, I have to point out something that's a, a, an incredible application for us in this. We saw last week that we have been given a worthy calling. The other word for calling is a vocation. The vocation that Paul is primarily talking about is that of being followers of Jesus Christ. That's the vocation. But within that, God gives us unique gifts to do our job. To do a job so that we can provide for ourselves, so that we can provide for others and give in need. But even that comes from God's hand. John Calvin says in his collection of sermons, for the sake of trivia, I'm going to tell you that this book on Calvin's sermons is entitled Calvin's 32nd Sermon on Ephesians. Okay? So just so you know, we're at like maybe 17. By the time Calvin got to this point in the text, he was on his 32nd sermon. Okay? As Calvin looks at this particular text, he says something with Deuteronomy 8 in mind. Here's what he says. Let every man beware then that he does not thieve and steal with one hand, that he may afterwards give with the other. But let each one of us have both our hands clean. Never let us be double-minded, but labor with all uprightness to earn our living in such a way that if God sends us any profit by it, we may take it as his liberality. And in fact, Moses also forbids us to attribute any portion of our gain to our own skill or to the labor of our hands, for God will have us to be indebted to him for everything. Isn't that incredible? He has called us to a spiritual vocation and He's given us a tangible vocation. Think about a job you've had. Think about a business that you've started. All those things from the hand of God. Walk humbly, believer. Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18 that Calvin had in mind says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gave you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm the covenant that he swore to your fathers. So perhaps this point didn't convince us or convict us that we're thieving. But sometimes we thieve God of the glory that's due to him. We thieve God of the, the gratitude that we ought to rightfully show. None of what we have is from our hands. It's from his Fourthly, so recapping for you, we put off lying and speaking truthfully. That's number one. We put off anger. We've put off stealing and we're going to work for our living. Fourthly, we're going to put off unwholesome talk and instead speak help 
to one another. This is about how we conduct our mouths and our lips as we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the word corrupting here is like rotten, like a fermented fruit, but not the good kind of fermented, like the this is disgusting kind of thing. It's rotten. Let no rotten talk come out of your mouths. Of course, we've seen as we looked at the book of James and we learned about the tongue, how it sets a forest ablaze, how it steers a ship into wreckage. The problem is our hearts. That's what comes out of our hearts. For that reason, we crucify the old self. We ask the Holy Spirit to continue transforming what's in the depths of our wicked hearts that we might have the image of Christ. Otherwise, what comes out of our mouth is corrupting and damaging. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. How we use our words is important. And it's not just that we don't have corrupting talk coming out of our mouths, but our talk should also be useful. Last week we said, hey, if you're on the patio, you're talking to somebody, share your testimony of what Jesus has done for you. Everything else is just blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about Jesus. 1 Timothy 5.13 says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. The speech of a follower of Jesus Christ should be purposeful when we interact with the world, but principally what Paul is talking about in this text is what we talk about with one another. It should be useful for building up. Remember the metaphor we've gotten in Ephesians so far? built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's being built up? His church. Are the things that come out of our mouth building up his church? They mustn't tear down. A quote I found, this one's worth putting on your walls for those of you who like the little sticker decals on your wall. Augustine, in his dining room, had this expression up on the wall. This is incredible. Augustine's rule was, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman at this table is not welcome. How's that for governing your dinnertime conversation? You want to speak ill or critically of anyone else? Please take your plate in the other room. Right? That's pretty tangible. The things that come out of our mouth ought to be building up, even if the person is, is absent. Moreover, the last phrase of this Warrants meditation, warrants memorization, I might say. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And what kind of grace have we received so far as we understand Paul's truths as he lays them out here? Grace, immeasurable, lavish, Grace that points to his own praiseworthiness. That's the kind of grace we give. That's the kind of grace we speak. 
our operational definition for grace and mercy. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Do our words reflect that? Do our words say, I'm going to speak grace to you. I might not feel in my heart that you deserve it, but what has Christ done for me? I deserve nothing that he's done for me. And for those reasons, I am going to choose my words to encourage, to edify, to love, to speak peace. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to all those who hear. As we move forward, the fifth point that we'll, that we'll see here is that we're now going to put off bitterness we're going to put off these sins of the heart. If you go to verse 30, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What an incredible verse. What an incredible verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, when we come to Christ, when we accept the forgiveness that he has offered us through his shed blood, his Holy Spirit indwells us. Decided to start today with Jeremiah chapter 31. The promise of that new covenant is that the law is now written on our hearts. This triune God, the God who gave us the law, the God who spoke creation into existence, came in human form to perfectly obey the law. Messiah. And not only that, there's more. He gave us his Holy Spirit. He gave us his Holy Spirit to indwell us. His Holy Spirit indwells us and it convicts us and it seals us and it helps us live with our conduct worthy of the calling that we've been given. If we look at this, there's a few things that we need to understand. First is well said by our brother Spurgeon. And this should give us marvel. This should cause us to just marvel at what God has done, right? Throughout this passage, gifts of grace to help us live a worthy calling. Here's what Spurgeon says. For it is an inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever-blessed God condescends to enter into such infinite relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions, his great love for us makes possible his grief. Imagine that. A holy, righteous God indwelling us. Dirty vessels of clay. Is that not astounding? And in doing so, he directs our conduct. He directs our hearts. With that comes the great weight of knowing that we're held accountable for this. Isaiah chapter 63, where Paul again points to this reality. In verse 10, it says, But they rebelled and they grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy, and he himself fought against them. There's the danger of grieving the Spirit. There's the, the danger of rebelling against God. How is the Holy Spirit described? Holy. Holy. Can the Holy Spirit indwell something that's not holy? By God's grace, he does. 
but he calls us to become more and more holy and not to grieve him, but to live in step. What's further remarkable about this is that the way Paul lays this out, he uses the word seal. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, we've heard this before, right? Like, there's a wax seal, like a signet ring that communicates ownership. But there's another aspect of sealing that's important for us to understand, and that is that it is an oath. It is a promise. This is mine, God says, right? We started out with, don't speak falsehood, don't make oaths in the name of God. But you know who's authorized to make oaths in the name of God? (laughs) God, right? God says, this one's mine, I am sealing her with your Holy Spirit. I am sealing him with your Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit indwells, and it convicts us, and it directs us, and it gives us the assurance that his ongoing work is just that ongoing. He will be faithful to finish what he started. Proverbs 4.18 says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. This sanctification is ongoing. It keeps happening. I have to share with you one more Illinois story. It comes along with this idea of putting off and putting on. After leaving Pacific Hope, we spent uh, a year and a half in Costa Rica in language school. God gave us a little detour along the way, and I took a job in Illinois, worked at a corporate headquarters of a company there, and we had one car, and so I biked to work during the wintertime. It was a very short commute, but it was a very cold commute. And in order to get to work safely and alive, I have to wear layer upon layer upon layer of clothing. I think at one point I figured out that the dollar amount of the clothing I had on was more than the bike I was riding. And as I got to work, it occurred to me, it took me longer to take off the clothes that I had on and to put my other clothes on than I actually spent at the workday. That's a slight exaggeration, but it occurs to me that that is a perfect analogy. Our Christian walk is characterized by us spending so much time taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes that sometimes that becomes our primary purpose. And guess what? That is God's primary purpose. His primary purpose is to be glorified through you and through me. That's his purpose. So what could be more purposeful than God saying, Keep taking off those layers. You've got layer after layer and layer of old self. Keep taking it off. And I'll keep giving you new clothes to put on. Linens washed in the blood of the lamb. It's going to take some time, brothers and sisters. It's not going to happen overnight. But keep taking off the old self and putting on the new self. As we move into verse 31... We understand the importance of of not grieving the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And now we're given this clear statement. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see that list? Everything in that list is unholy. And that sits right next to the statement that the Holy Spirit indwells us. That ought to help us understand exactly how offensive that is to God how offensive it is to a world that watches us and needs to see our holiness, and how offensive that is to our brother and sister in Christ 
that watch us in our sanctification journey. Hebrews chapter 12 explains this verse really well. It gives us the the positive side of what Paul is trying to say here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, for by it many have become defiled. You see, that there helps us understand that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, another word for clamor, by the way, is noise or like a brawl. There should be no brawling in the body, right? There should be no dissent happening. Any of those things can cause a root of bitterness. And what's a root of bitterness do in a church? Destruction. It doesn't honor Christ. It divides. It causes us to fall short of the worthy calling that we've been called to. Without belaboring that verse 32 takes us to a right explanation of how our conduct ought to be shaped. This ought to be our memory verse for the week. You guys up for it? Short, sweet. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Zechariah 9, sorry, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Through Zechariah, God recaps what he keeps saying, and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your hearts. You see, under the old covenant, God says, show kindness and mercy. He told them what to do, but now, under the new covenant, he has shown us what to do. You see that? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not just an imperative. This is an imperative with an example. As Christ forgave you. We have the special revelation in God's word. We have promise from cover to cover that Christ would come, that Christ would complete a work for us and offer to us his righteousness. We have a clear message that he came in human form, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and he gave himself up for us. He was crucified on the cross and offers those who would place their faith in him forgiveness from their sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the very next chapter goes on to describe Christ as our defense attorney that would represent us as guilty people and say, I'm paying those consequences. As such, we have available to us his forgiveness. He would wipe away our sins. The parable of the debtor, right? Our debt is incalculable. If you try to keep track of all the things that you've done to offend a holy God, good luck. It's an impossible list. If you try to keep track of the ways in which you have offended a certain person, 
You probably can't even keep track of that. Our debt is immeasurable. But you know what's more immeasurable? His grace and forgiveness. Our sins are cast as far away as the east is from the west. So in light of that, what kind of forbearance ought we offer? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the gospel. And we are a gospel community because of what Christ has done for us. Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Bearing with one another, and if any one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving one another just as the Lord has given, forgiven you, so you must also forgive. No other group of people can understand what God has done for us. The forgiveness that has been offered to us through Christ ought to shape every interaction we have with one another. I want to close with this as we consider what we've put off, right? We've put off our lying and, and we've taken on a truthful speech in our conduct, or the way we do business with one another. We've put off anger. We've been learning to slow our responses. We've understood that, that we're working for giving, we're putting away stealing, and we're, we're working for the glory of God. We put away unwholesome speech and we're going to say stuff that builds up the body of Christ. And we're going to put away bitterness and, and malice and clamor and instead extend the tender-hearted forgiveness that Christ has extended to us. But all of these things sound so incredibly difficult. But as we move through this, we see that God is faithful to give us those grace gifts along the way. So I want to close with John chapter 3. In this passage, we see incredibly how God in his grace has given us forgiveness, salvation, and the interoperability of the Trinity so that we can live in a manner worthy of the high calling that we have. Starting at verse 31 of John chapter 3. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We recognize that through your Son, Jesus, we have been forgiven much. Your grace covers all of our sins, Lord God, and that you have fulfilled your promises of the covenant of grace. You have knit us together into one family, to one body, with your son Jesus being our head. We ask, Lord God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that indwells us, that seals us, that convicts us and directs us, we would be more like you. That our conduct would be made to shine brighter and brighter until it's full day. We wait for that day of redemption, Lord God, and we ask that you would continue to show yourself faithful in sanctifying us as Pacific Hope Church. 
We ask that our conduct would be glorifying to you and would draw others to know you, our merciful Savior and our gracious God. We pray all these things for the praise of your glorious grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.